Happy Mother's Day, moms. Hey, guys. <laughs> Good to see you. Uh, hopefully you got some, uh, I don't know, breakfast in bed maybe, some homemade cards, some good barbecue this afternoon at least, right? How many people are grilling this afternoon? I just want to talk about grilling. I don't know why. <laughs> um, we're continuing our marriage series, and this has been, uh, I think, a, a, an incredibly relevant and, I know for me, impacting couple of weeks. Uh, and I'm, I'm excited to be a part of it, uh, grateful, really, to be an elder here, grateful to be able to serve in this church, and in particular to talk about this topic this morning. Um, at first, when Mike told me that I was going to preach on the forgiveness portion of the marriage series, I was like, yay, you know, that's great, forgiveness, that's awesome. Um, as I began to broach this topic, I, I have to be honest, I began to feel incredibly, incredibly inadequate. Um, this is a huge topic, and frankly intimidating, and, and my prayer this morning is that God would give us a grace through his word to hear from him. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray, and then Matt's going to play a video for us, um, and then we'll jump right in. God, we just thank you this morning for your word. Thank you that we get to hear from you, that you have given us this revealed word in scripture, and that you have let us know through your word, who you are, in the impact of who you are and what you've done in our lives and in our marriages. Pray this morning that you would open our hearts. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. amen. Let's hear from the Ludlows. Going from two people to one person and acting as one, like sometimes I feel like the person in a three-legged race where it's like the yeah. legs are not in sync. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It can be a challenge. <laughs> the hardest part about being married is when she doesn't want to do what I want her to do. <laughs> like, <laughs> if she doesn't want to, you know, not do the dishes right now, for example. <laughs> I don't want to do the dishes and she doesn't want to do the dishes then let's let the dishes alone. But the dishes need to be done. When we have our tough moments and arguments, we, don't we, fight. we never fight. <laughs> we definitely, um, we don't ever leave a disagreement or a conversation unfinished. I think at the end of those times, we usually feel a lot stronger as a couple. Um, we don't feel like arguments detriment our relationship in any way, but rather that they actually help bring us back together. A lot of the times they bring up deeper issues that were not really, we hadn't been focusing on or didn't realize were a problem. Jesus' sacrifice uh, for me in our relationship uh, definitely uh, changes how I uh, remember or, or for, forgive her transgressions towards me, like the Lord's prayers, like, look it, forgive as I forgave you, okay? Um, and it's it's hard to do that, um, but you have to. 
Elizabeth has complicated our relationship. Um, I think mostly because, like, we don't get to spend a, as much quality time with each other. I mean, in the beginning, it's just we were so exhausted all the time. You don't even remember to ask each other deep questions. It's like the, hi, how, how was your day? How was work? Is the farthest we get ever with a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> For someone considering a marriage, I would say it is absolutely bar none the best thing I ever did. Absolutely. Uh, don't wait. Uh, it, it's the most rewarding, challenging, difficult, miserable, fun, loving experience of my life. Um, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. Do it. Do it now. And don't wait. Make sure you have someone to marry. <laughs> Marriage in the United States is on the decline, right? I, I don't think I have to quote for you a lot of stats to articulate that. And part of what we're doing in this series is, is getting into the Word of God and spending these several weeks to say, what does God say about marriage? What is it? And what are we supposed to be doing within this, this relationship that seems to be set apart from, from, all, other, from all others? And, and the question is, why? What is it about this relationship that God has ordained? Why, why marriage? Um, in the book, The Definition of Marriage by Tim Keller, one of the books we've been walking through as a, as a missional community. I know throughout the church we've been reading this book together. I took a look at some of the stats. I went to some of the, to the stats that he got uh, his stats from and took a look at those, and it led me to other places. And as I was looking through the statistics on marriage in the United States, I, it's concerning. I think our attitude towards what this relationship is has certainly changed, has it not? Um, 72% of people in the U.S., 72% of adults in the U.S. were married. 2008, it's now only 50%. Um, divorce is two times the rate it was today that it was in 1960. Um, I think it's safe to say that young people today struggle with the idea of marriage and whether or not they even believe in it. I think a lot of young people as they've been uh, questioned and surveyed, is there's, there's actually robust social science as it pertains to this issue. Um, young people today do not believe their chances of having a good marriage are all that great. Uh, I love that Tim Keller quoted in the book Chris Rock, so I'm going to do that today. Uh, Chris Rock in his stand-up said, do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? Right? As if those are the only two options in front of people today. I think it's worthwhile for us to take a look, a sobering look at marriage and ask ourselves, how are we approaching this relationship and what does God say about it? What we find today is that all across our culture and all across really um, today Western society, people are approaching marriage as consumers, are they not? And they're approaching their marriages as a consumer, and, and the idea of their marriage is, what, as a consumer, am I going to get out of this relationship? In fact, I have a vision for my life, I have a purpose for my life, I know where I'm headed, and how is this particular person going to aid me in getting to where I want to be? 
how is this particular person going to make me more happy? How is this particular person going to help me get to where I want to get? And at the time that my happiness, um, superficial happiness, let's be clear, is infringed upon, or at the time that this particular person is no longer living up to my, to my needs, I'm out, right? I think to some degree it's, it's become like a vendor a vendor-type relationship where you would enter into some sort of business agreement with somebody, some sort of contractual arrangement where the idea of this contract is, I'm going to, as a vendor, um, reach out to you and contract with you, and as long as you are meeting the services that are required for me, then we can stay in relationship with each other. But as soon as those services aren't being met the way I want them to be met, then this relationship contractually is over. And I think in our culture, the me-centered, consumer-centered relationship has been the mindset of people as they walk into their marriage. No reason. No, no wonder why so many of them are ending so quickly. Does that make sense? And as God and his word has been instructing us, as, as Mike and Tim have spent the last couple of weeks defining what marriage is, what we're beginning to see rise out of scripture is that this relationship is so much more than a contract. This relationship is so much more than just a mechanism by which I find some superficial happiness or some satisfaction in terms of how I'm happy physically, sexually, how I'm happy in terms of my goals in life. But it's so much more than that. What we're seeing in the Word of God is is that marriage is actually a covenant. Marriage is actually a picture that God is painting. And we we approached Ephesians chapter 5, which is really the passage in the Word of God on marriage. It is is the essay that God has written uh, about what marriage is and what it's supposed to be and what it's supposed to look like. And and I don't want to re-preach what Mike and Tim have spent time doing, but as we heard from the Word of God, we began to see this picture that God is painting of how much he loves us. God in his church and his sacrifices, he gave his life for us in the church's response of worship and he begins to paint this picture of marriage where he says husbands love your wife like god like christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in essence the husband is to reflect the gospel as he lays his life down for his wife and says this isn't about me this isn't about my happiness this is about the gospel of jesus christ and i'm going to love you in such a way that that my preferences come underneath that i love you in Ephesians chapter 5, like I love my own flesh, that I look to your needs above my own. And, and there's this sacrificial picture of the, of the husband loving his wife, not in an emotional love, but in a sacrificial love in the same way that Christ died and sacrificed for the church. Isn't that a powerful picture? Then we see the scripture reflect wives um, respecting and submitting to their husbands as, as there is, in essence, and I know we hear that word and our culture goes crazy, and you're like, oh my God, I think Kirk Cameron just mentioned this passage uh, uh, publicly, and he was ripped across the media for saying the word submission in relationship to his wife. But it's, it's, it's a totally cult- counter-cultural idea, this, this crazy idea uh, that, that we have misused and abused and and. and, and and as sin has entered into this word submission, there's been this abusive connotation to the word. But what we see in scripture is something so beautiful. 
We see, we see two people mutually submitting to each other. A husband submitting in the way that he sacrificially loves his wife. And a wife responding and coming under and submitting to her husband. And as they live to outserve each other, because marriage isn't about them. It's about the picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our community. We see God's grace just move in this relationship. Isn't that a beautiful picture? We come to it like consumers, and we certainly come to it with a me-centered attitude. And that's so hard, isn't it? I got to be honest. As I reflected on these words in Scripture, we're about to read Ephesians chapter 4, 31 and 32, I, I needed to repent. It is so easy to come to any relationship, and in particular, we're talking about this special relationship that God's ordained in Scripture, this covenant relationship. It's so easy to come with our own agenda. It's so easy to come day to day with this me-centered, selfish idea. I, I mean, I have to be honest, and I hope that as we reflect and get introspective today as we get into the Word, when you wake up in the morning, when I wake up in the morning, I recognize my great desire to fulfill my own needs. Do you not? Like, you know, I'm hungry. I need to get something to eat. Or, you know, I'm cold. I got to turn the heat up. Or here's how I perceive my day going today. And these are the goals that I have. And these are the things I'd like to accomplish. And how often in the scope of relationship, when, when someone gets in the way of that personal agenda you have, that there's this affront, there's this defensiveness, there's this selfishness. There is nothing like marriage and children to demonstrate as a real picture in our lives of how selfish we really are, isn't it? Is that not true? So, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32. I think what we find in, this, in, in the reality of our culture, that the problem in marriage certainly is the paradigm. It certainly is the mindset. It certainly is this consumer idea, this selfish, me-centered idea. But I think what we also find in this very, very close relationship is that this particular passage that really applies to all people, particularly applies in our marriages. Because this issue of forgiveness, this issue of, of grace given vertical relationship with God that turns horizontal towards someone else. This idea of forgiveness is so powerful and so necessary in this particularly close relationship that it unforgiveness begins to become the root and the problem of why so many marriages end. How many of you guys think that's true with me this morning? So let's look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32 together. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Amen? What a powerful passage. And what we see is this is Ephesians chapter 4 leading into Ephesians chapter 5 where, we, where, where Paul begins to paint this beautiful picture of marriage. But, but in, in essence, this idea of forgiveness, really, for those of you sitting here this morning, we could talk about this in the context of any relationship that we have. But let's speak particularly to this, 
this relationship of marriage. I don't think there's a relationship on the planet that more consistently needs to be in the practice of forgiveness than our marriages, right? I mean, this is not a one-time event, forgiveness. This is a practice. This is a state of mind. This is, this is something that we live in because of a, per- a perspective that we can only gain from Scripture. Here's the other thing I recognize this morning. Some people have been hurt so deeply that they can't even hear these words. John Piper says it this way. Some people have been hurt so deeply that forgiving would be as impossible as flying. Here's what I understand this morning. That the gospel of Jesus Christ can give you wings. Amen? I recognize a hurt in the lives of people. I see it in my job. I think I've experienced it, but not to the degree that, that I think some in this room have. This idea of forgiveness would be as impossible as walking outside of this building and flying this morning. And you ask yourself, how? How could I possibly forgive? How could I forgive a spouse that's betrayed in the most personal, devastating ways? How could I forgive when maybe your heart feels so bitter that it's taken, as Hebrews talks about, a root in your life that's defiling everything? How could I forgive this anger that you may feel towards someone else and you don't even remember why you're angry anymore? And we go to Ephesians 4 and we see it. We see the picture. Uh, Paul writes the words that people feel in these relationships. And really it's the relationships that are closest that hurt the most, isn't it? It's the people that you count on and that you're closest to and that you, you are, you're, you're in need of their, their respect and their love and their sacrifice. And all these words we talk about as this picture of marriage, you're in need of those things. Men are in need of, of respect from their wives. Their words weigh so heavy and they mean so much to every man. And, and, and as wives reflect a particular part of the nature of God, they're in need of this safety-given, protective love and sacrificial love that comes from their husbands. And we, in our sin, every one of us fail and fall so short so often that it sin damages and it hurts and it cuts. And when it's people that are this close to each other, it hurts and it cuts the deepest, doesn't it? talks about, in Ephesians chapter 4, these words, let all bitterness, wrath and anger, clamor and slander be put, put it away, be put away from you, along with malice. What is bitterness? It says every kind of bitterness, let all bitterness, it means every single kind. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. If you have time to flip there quickly or hit it on your app on your iPhone, you can. I'm going to read it. It's not going to be up there. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. 
we see this idea of a root of bitterness. Bitterness really is, it's, it's more than just a flash of anger. It's more than just a quick offense. Bitterness is something that begins to take root in the heart of somebody that, that springs up in their lives and begins to defile everything. How often does this happen in the marriage relationship? Uncommunicated expectations between spouses produce discouragement and disappointment. You know, you, you hear the story. I remember as a, as a pastor, as a young pastor, doing um, some marriage counseling and, and having folks come into the office, and you would sit and talk with them, and you'd hear about this, this bitterness, this root of bitterness that sprung up in their lives, and they're angry with each other, and they dislike each other, and, and you see this malice and this anger and this hatred. And, and as you begin to dig down into it and ask questions why, they don't even remember why they hate each other. You, you walk in the door every day from work and you look up and you see that cobweb in the corner, right? And you think, man, why didn't she get that? <laughs> you, and you're not going to do it because you, you don't think it was your job. And then, you know, a week goes by and a month goes by. And every time you look at that darn thing, you're just like, oh. I remember, anybody watch Everybody Loves Raymond? Love that show. What a picture of my life in some ways. My mother's Marie. My brother, when he was single, was Robert. It was, it, it was absolutely phenomenal. But I'll never forget this episode where Deborah and Raymond had come home from vacation and someone had placed a suitcase at the bottom of the stairs. Neither one of them would take it up the stairs. They walked by it every day. And as you saw in the episode, bitterness began to, to seep in. Every time they saw each other, they were angry. They would walk by the thing, and it would just enrage them and walk upstairs. Then the other person would walk by, see it, and enrage it. And neither one of them were going to take the suitcase upstairs till it actually progressed to such a, it came to a head that there was almost a physical altercation. Matt, if you have the YouTube video, go ahead and play. Okay, Ray. You know what? I'm getting it. Well, what's that supposed to mean? It means I'll get it. I'll be the one who got it. Oh, no, 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 no. I will get it. Let the record show that I no, got it. Let's you let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. I've been there. How many of you guys have been there? But in a more significant way, we have those little things, we have those altercations, we allow bitterness to take root, malice, anger. But in so many other ways, I think many times in in deeper ways, bitterness has begun to take root in a relationship to the degree that it's, it's really not even funny. To the degree where there's a type of malice or anger that, that you, you can't explain, that you don't understand. And, and honestly, the idea 
of even liking this person that you're in relationship with becomes difficult to, to grasp. The idea of forgiveness seems as impossible as flying. Maybe there's hurts, folks in this room, that, that went even deeper than that. Offenses of, of betrayal and adultery, offenses of potentially domestic violence, where the only safe thing to do would be to, to leave the home. And we certainly recognize that and see that as a reality. And there's hurt, there's wounds, there's bitterness. And we would say in our consumeristic society, in our society that says um, that this is really about me and it's about my happiness, we would say, go be happy, right? I, I remember sitting in my office at work in the DA's office and hearing two women talk about a pending divorce and I remember the other woman saying to the, to the one getting a divorce, she said, you just need to be happy. This is just about your happiness. You're no longer happy. In fact, the kids are going to be happier if you're happy. They don't want to see you fighting. How many of you guys have heard those things articulated in our culture today? Tim Keller quotes a stat that folks in a marriage that's unhappy, in a marriage where they are having difficulty and, and feel angry, that stick with it, five years down the road are exponentially more satisfied than those who end it. And why would that be true? Why would that be true? That would be true because as we see throughout Scripture, as we see throughout um, the, the entirety of the Word of God and as God relates to us, what do, we, what do we see from God? We see that God is not about us. God is not about me and you and our superficial happiness. What he is about is your joy. What God is about is your joy. And as we see the picture of the tree in Psalm 1 whose roots are dug deep into the water, which is the word of God, we see this, this tree that goes through difficulty and storms and desert and rain and, and, and has moments of ex experiential unhappiness. But the further you're dug down deep into the word of God and doing what God has asked you to do, you experience what? Life and a joy that goes beyond your ability to understand. You see, experiential happiness uh, is, is, easily, is easily ended, right? I mean, you could wake up and feel happy. The coffee just tasted good, right? It was just perfect this morning. I got up, everything went well. I got dressed, I'm ready for work. I'm gonna have a good day. You get in the car, and you're feeling experientially, existentially, you're feeling happy that day, right? And it's as easy as that knucklehead in the left lane. Get out of the left lane, right? And it's over. That's happiness. God is about joy. Joy that, that, that springs up from within you, that comes from doing the hard thing that comes from doing the thing that God has asked us to do. And as we experience a covenant relationship that reflects the gospel of Jesus Christ, and as we sacrifice our preferences and mutually submit to each other and see God bless a family, what we're going to experience together despite very, very difficult times and tragedy and difficulty, what we're going to experience together is a life of joy that only God can give. Amen? How? How do we do this? Put away bitterness, malice, wrath, anger, 
slander. Boy, that's a big one, isn't it? Slander is, is really reckless words, right? How reckless can we be with our tongues as we live together? Man, I know this is mine. I cannot do math. I cannot do science. That's why my undergrad's in theology and I went to law school. My kids come to me by fourth grade. Despite Common Core, I don't have a clue with their math homework. They got to go see their mom. But can I use my words? Sometimes my words can be so cutting. Sometimes in my anger, I will stand up in the kitchen amongst my family, and as Paul Daly put it, and I love this quote, I will give the greatest speech I will ever regret. How many of you have been there? And afterwards I think, what did I do? Man, do I need forgiveness. Slander, we can be reckless with our words. James 3, 5, and 6 talks about the tongue that can set a forest fire of harm towards others. Our tongue has the, the ability to destroy. And as Tim communicated those verses at the, at the end of Ephesians chapter 5 that talked about a husband who loves his wife and a wife who respects her husband, you see, you know, and, and Tim addressed it, that the Bible doesn't even talk about the wife loving her husband because in some ways it's assumed and in some ways um, um, it's a response to this sacrificial love from a husband that's long-suffering, that, that, that really fulfills the definition in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 of real love, God love, agape love that's by choice, not based on performance. And we see this response of respect. And what I recognize in Scripture is something as a man that I so desperately need. Words from my wife that build up. There's no one on the face of the planet that can destroy me or devastate me quicker than my wife. And there's no one on the planet that can encourage me and build me up and bring me to a place where I feel like, like despite my difficulties and my sin, I'm loved like my wife. We have to be so careful with our words. I know that I have that ability as well to slander and to tear down. And God says, put it away. Husbands, if you love your wife as if your own flesh, as Ephesians 5 says, meaning that no man hates his own flesh, it says. You, you love her like you love yourself. That means that her preferences go before yours. That means that, that the door gets open. That means that what does she need today? And if we are loving sacrificially, preferring her, making her, as the word of God says in Ephesians chapter five, beautiful in our, in our love and in our sacrifice, and if, if the wife is responding with that kind of submission and respect towards her husband as they mutually submit, then, then, then we cannot, paint that picture with our lives and with our marriages, the picture of the gospel of how Jesus loves us to the community around us if we're slanderous and cutting with our words towards each other. Can't do it. Boy, have we cut deep sometimes. John Piper in his book about this this momentary marriage in chapter four, he, he talks about this idea of forgiveness and forbearance. And what we see in this concept that I'm not going to quote uh, 
in, in specific, but I, I want to reference as we see this idea as we live together in marriage, the, the need for continual forgiveness and the need for forbearance. Now, forgiveness of sins that we commit towards each other and some things that we do to each other aren't sinful, they're just frankly annoying, right? And we need to forbear with each other. It's that thing when you were first dating that you were like, oh, it's so cute. She's so wonderful. That's so amazing. I love that amazing little twitch or that thing that she does. And then like 10 years later, you're like, oh my gosh, right? (laughs) And we forbear. Forgiveness and forbearance. Don't let bitterness take root in your heart. Don't let malice and slanderous words come from your mouth in this relationship. And we still have not answered the question as to how. How do we do this? How can we do it? There's only one way. Now here's what we recognize. Sociologically, there is robust, robust data on why marriages should stay together. Take theology and God out of it and just look at the sociology of it. There is 40 to 50 years worth of data. The Heritage Foundation actually put out some amazing stuff, some amazing studies about children and marriages. And what we see from the last 40 to 50 years of data is that, is that children that are raised in homes with moms and dads that stay together have a better shot. That's really what the data says. And there's no question about it. To the degree that even the liberal social scientists had to change their minds. That's how compelling the data is. And so we recognize in a general sense that our marriages should stay together, that our marriages should, 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 uh, should not be declining but should be increasing, that marriage is a good thing, that moms and dads together who love each other is great for kids, it's great for our communities. And so there's some compelling reasons apart from theology to stay together, but, but even more compelling than all of that is what we recognize and the reason and the way that this thing happened is because God ordained marriage because of the gospel, right? That's the most important reason that the gospel tells us that our marriages paint a picture of God's love for us and our response to that. And so we ask ourselves in the midst of this, we recognize that this relationship is is so much more than just something the government's interested in sociologically for kids. It's so much more than just something that brings me happiness or that fulfills my needs. It's so much more than just some relationship because you look hot and I look hot and we want to be together, so let's just be together. It's so much more than all of that. So the only way this thing can happen is if we live in relationship with each other, forgiving and forbearing, because there's no question. Listen, when you get married, young person who's single, the goosebumps are going to wear off. The you look hot and I look hot and we get along and had a good conversation, so let's stay together and maybe get married, that's going to wear off. And so many people in the midst of a marriage where that's what it's all about, look to some other person and feel goosebumps again, momentary happiness again, and think, I'm going to chase that. To devastating effect. So when this important relationship that reflects the gospel gets tough, when it begins to cut, when it begins to hurt, when it begins to require work and forbearance and forgiveness... How do we keep it together? For what? To reflect the gospel and for our joy. Look at the end of verse 32. 
forgive as God in Christ forgave you. Amen? Caleb said it in the video. The only way to do this is to come to grips with the gospel in your own heart. The only way to accomplish this is to recognize the depths of your own sin and the forgiveness in Christ Jesus towards you. C.S. Lewis said it this way, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. It's, it's, it's like the story in the parable that we preached about not too long ago where the man had a debt to the, to the master of, of five lifetimes worth of salary. And the, and the king looked to him and he said, I'm going to forgive your debt of five lifetimes worth of salary or even more. I think it was hundreds of lifetimes worth of salary that you owe me. And then that man turns around and someone owes him 5,000 bucks. And he looks at him and he says, I'm not forgiving you and has him thrown in jail. How crazy would that be, right? I think when people heard that parable, the reaction was the same reaction that you have. You look at it and go, that's, that's incredibly unintegral. That's just wrong. How could that ever happen? And what we see in our own hearts as we get introspective is if you really know the gospel and you really know the depths of your own sin and what Jesus on the cross did for you to look at a spouse or any other person in your life and harbor unforgiveness is just as ridiculous, is it not? What I can say in faith from the word of God, recognizing it's easier for me to say than it is to do given some of the hurt that some of you have experienced. I can stand on the word of God this morning and say that there's nothing that anyone has done to you that you in your sin haven't done worst to God and been forgiven for. Let me say it this way. There is no sin that's been done against you or that you've done that's more powerful than the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no sin. Some of you need to look into your own life and recognize forgiveness. There is no sin you've done that is more powerful than the cross of Jesus Christ. In Christ, he's forgiven you. I think some of us need to face our own sin and realize that it's not more powerful than the cross. I need to recognize and receive forgiveness. You see, for the horizontal relationship in a marriage to work, there needs to be a vertical relationship between you and Jesus. And as you enter into relationship with Jesus Christ and recognize the wonder of the cross, as you recognize the wonder of his grace and the wonder of his forgiveness, and you begin to let the sparks of that fly off onto your life, and let the word of God and his forgiveness that he gives freely for you because of the debt that he paid for you, as you begin to, to, to come into a more deeper relationship with that and begin to recognize it and soak in it, it should produce in you the ability to turn horizontally towards your spouse and give that forgiveness as your perspective and your paradigm about your own sin begins to change. Does that make sense? I just want to read some word, some of the word to you and just let it wash over you. Let the word of God begin to change you and begin to soften your heart, my heart. 
Matthew 6, 14 and 15. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Isaiah 43, 25 through 26. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Review the past for me. Let us argue the matter together. State the case for your innocence. Acts 3.19, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Isaiah 1.18, come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Ephesians 1.7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Last one, Hebrews 10.17. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts, I will remember no more. Amen? Charles Spurgeon said it this way. Listen to these words. My life was full of sorrow and wretchedness, believing that I was lost. But oh, the blessed gospel of the God of grace came to me, and with it a sovereign word, deliver him. And I, who was but a minute before as wretched as a soul could be, could have danced for the very merriment of heart. And as the snow fell on my road, home from the little house of prayer, I thought every snowflake talked with me and told of the pardon I had found. For I was white as the driven snow through the grace of God. To be forgiven is such sweetness that honey is tasteless in comparison with it. But yet there is one thing sweeter still, and that is to forgive. As it is more blessed to give than to receive. So to forgive rise, rises a state higher in experience than to be forgiven. Amen? What do we need to do in our marriages? To paint this picture. What do we need to do in our marriages to display the gospel of Jesus Christ? This morning what we need to do is listen to the word of God. And recognize that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true for me. You see I know that there are so many people. That that sit in church week after week and they say yes God loves us. Yes God loves people. And I know I've said this before in here. And it's so easy to say that God loves people as if he's partial to groups. But there's a moment that you need to come to if you haven't already. 
And if you've come to this moment already, you need to come to it again, over and over and over again. Whether it be that moment where you're alone in the shower or in the morning or late at night when no one else is around and you're sitting there and you're contemplating your life and you're contemplating what's going on, you need to come to an introspective moment when you recognize something that's incredibly real, and that's that God loves you. He loves you. He loves you not in the way that you think of love. As the word love hits your brain and registers through your experiences and how maybe your father treated you or everything that you've experienced throughout love and it pumps out a particular definition, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying God loves you in the way that God describes love. It's a love that's sacrificial. It's a love that while you were yet a sinner, while you were in betrayal of him and not looking to him and not interested in him, he came and he died for you. He became the substitute for you. The person whose sin, in comparison to the holiness of God, created an inability for you to be in the presence of God. It created an offense towards God that God could never be around, that needed to be judged. It created a debt. And and believe me, as I look into my own heart, I recognize that I I have offended God, that I have created debt that needs to be paid. God came, and he, the only one who didn't deserve it, died. He, the only one who was pure and perfect, he sacrificed himself, not for the masses, for you, personally for you. Sometimes that's hard to grasp. Chuck Colson tells a story of a concentration camp In World War II. And the officer is bringing the prisoners back from the concentration camp and they're setting their shovels against the wall as they're going to go back to their quarters. And he counts the shovels and he sees that there's only 19 shovels and not 20. And he says, who left their shovel? And the officer looks at at the men and women standing there and he says, who left their shovel? Who did not bring their shovel back? And no one answers. They stand silent. And he says, I am going to shoot 10 people in the head in the first minute it takes me to figure out who did not bring their shovel back unless somebody steps forward and says they did not bring their shovel back. A 19-year-old boy in the concentration camp stepped forward and he, the officer took the 19-year-old young man about 20 feet away from the others and shot him in the head and killed him. And then when he went back to send the rest of the prisoners to their quarters, he counted again, realized there was 20 shovels, and he had just miscounted. When Jesus stepped forward and died for you, he knew who he was dying for. That's the difference between that story and the gospel. When Jesus gave his life up for you, you were in his mind. He knew he was paying the price so that you could be in the presence of God and you could be forgiven. Your sins could be blotted out. Folks, if we're going to live a life of forgiveness towards others and a life of forgiveness towards our spouses, we need to be saturated 
with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You got to live in it. You got to preach the gospel to yourself every day. You need to come to the recognition and the realization that Jesus died for you and that he loves you and his love isn't based on your performance. And, and like the man who was forgiven many lifetimes worth of salaries, when you look towards other, others, the only thing you can do, the only appropriate response is forgiveness. Amen? See, forgiveness is acting towards someone in such a way that they don't deserve. It's saying, it's saying that I am going to take your offenses and I'm not going to count them against you any longer. I'm going to send them away and I'm going to enter into a relationship with you that is forgiven, that is a reconciliation. I'm going to celebrate with you. I'm going to cry with you. I'm going to be back in relationship with you and I'm going to no longer let those offenses get in our way because I recognize that that's exactly what God has done for me. Amen? Let the gospel of Jesus Christ saturate your hearts this morning and let it saturate our marriages. Put away and forgive even when you don't feel like it because Jesus in Christ has forgiven you and watch your marriage heal and watch the joy begin to come back in your relationship. Don't bail because of a lack of momentary happiness. But live for Christ to your joy. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your gospel. For it is the basis by which we recognize our ability and our need to forgive others because of such a great forgiveness you have given towards us. God, my prayer this morning is simple. Let it be real, more real than it's ever been. Let it be personal. Let us sit at the foot of the cross and allow the sparks and the reality of that love that is objective, that is real, that happened, that doesn't change based on our performance. Let that fly off into our hearts and let it, Ignite in us the ability to live horizontally towards each other in a way that we forgive and we forbear. Let our marriages be those that paint a picture of your gospel to our world. And what we recognize this morning is we cannot give you as we serve you in that way. You bring a joy that's so much better than happiness a joy and a love that goes beyond our ability to comprehend. Help us to be as faithful as you have been. Forgive us for where we've fallen short. In Jesus' name.